baseball's been doing this for a long time with with athletes and pitchers shoulders and how soon they restore range of motion and power output and i think the hips a similar similar um scenario where if you're constantly losing range of motion and not bouncing back something's happening either at a joint or a soft tissue level that we need to be mindful of Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So today's episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about hip and groin injuries. So we've got the Vice President of Sports Medicine from the reigning NBA champion, the Denver Nuggets, in Steve Short. So Steve produced a Q&A for us at Sportsmith a couple of months ago, well, probably actually longer than that, maybe a year ago, on this topic around prevention of these um, these issues, these hip and groin issues that athletes have and and often have uh, repeatedly. So to get someone on of Steve's caliber is is amazing. Um, so we did dive into how we prevent these type of injuries, why they're so difficult to diagnose, why would we go down operative route versus a non-operative route. Then we have a little chat around testing of this, so trying to prevent and understand, and then obviously the rehab of a particular injury as well. So if you're interested in this area, this episode will be unbelievable. Enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. So without further ado, over to the episode with Steve. Steve Short, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Rob, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So you, you, I can't even remember how I came across you. Maybe it was the it was the um, the injury prevention paper that I think I'd talked to you about. You answered a couple of questions for the Sportsmith Six, and then uh, essential after that to get you on the podcast. So thank you for giving up some of your little bit of free time in between practice and and the game this evening. So um, yeah, before we dive into the the chat, which where we're going to 
dive into that topic of um, injury prevention when it comes to hip and grind and some some rehab stuff as well. Would you mind just giving us a bit of an intro to you, your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, totally. Well, uh, like I said before, just, hey, thanks for having me. Um, you know, we, we utilize all your resources from your pods to your articles uh, within our group here and just uh, really honored to be here and, and just grateful for all the content that you put out. To, so keep up with all the great work on Thank your you. end. But as, as, as for me, I'll try not to bore everybody too much, but um, I'm a physical therapist with the Denver Nuggets basketball team. Uh, titles Vice President of Sports Medicine with the, with the crew. So I'm um, just making sure that our high performance group is is integrated and swimming all in the same direction. Uh, came from Upper Michigan. Uh, did my undergraduate work at Michigan Tech University. Shout out to the Huskies. Uh, undergraduate work and got my doctorate at the University of Dayton down in Ohio. Uh, while I was there, got involved in some research initiatives with a lot of the local colleges and then some of the local pro teams, uh, in addition to working some small private practice clinics. Uh, That carried on to an internship with Oklahoma City Thunder, bounced around private practice a little bit and found my way with the Nuggets. Uh, And then we've just been kind of grinding together and climbing up uh, ever so slowly together, uh, organizationally and professionally. And and here we are with a great opportunity with you today. Ah, stop it, Steve. Thank you. So how long have you been in the Nuggets? I believe this is my 10th season. Okay. Okay. So starting as a, an assistant, where did you, where did you start on the, um, in the organization? Yeah, totally. So started as the, the lead physio there. Uh, and then as just kind of the organization crawled along, worked my way up into a little bit more of a leadership position, uh, where still working as a physio. Uh, but then just as we all know in high performance, you know, you wear a lot of hats and working day and night with athletic trainers, uh, strength coaches, massage therapists, physicians, uh, to make sure that we provide the best services that we can. So in terms of organizational structure, is SNC Sports Science under your remit, or does that have a separate vertical? Yeah, I think there's, you know, like my job is to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we're working together. So, but that being said, we have a great group and they have a high level of autonomy to make sure that they're providing the best services to their skill set. And so, you know, we've, we've done enough job and reflection and meeting every day where we've kind of created that unit where um, we have that level of autonomy. And then at the same time, um, making sure that when we do need to make leadership decisions or um, just where we're going as a group or on a case-by-case basis, um, you know, then then it's my job to make sure that, that that's being executed. Nice, nice. So in terms of the, the area of um, groin injuries, injury prevention in this area, what led you to this area of interest? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, A, the, f- the first reason why I was probably most interested in it is way long time ago, back in the day, uh, I went through it myself. So I kind of had a personal connection from my playing career that um, this is a a very frustrating injury for an athlete. A lot of times you can continue playing, but you don't feel necessarily that you're at your best. And it's quite painful in the meantime. So it takes a lot of preparation and work to play through something like that. And so that led to my initial interest. And then just by by way of luck in the course of the career, um, had some challenging cases early on that um, were in front of me that 
matched up with with hip and groin pathology and so that just deepened the interest and we wrote up a couple case studies and um, just kind of dove in and reached out to some experts to learn reached out to a lot of mentors to learn more about the area so we could serve those athletes and then um, just like sometimes things comes in waves so we were treating a lot of athletes year after year on some of the um, uh, on some of these types of cases be it hip be it adductor and so uh, we ran some internal work and started some group initiatives and that kind of just kept us going down the rabbit hole nice so let, let's kick off let's let's get right in so why do athletes basketball athletes whatever why do athletes get hip and groin pain yeah that's that's a great and challenging question i wish the i had the hour, magic Steve. bullet answer yeah totally <laughs> So here, here we go. Well, A, they play sport. You know, if we didn't want them to happen, we probably just wouldn't play. You know, especially when you're playing court-based sports, there's an inherent stress to the lumbo-pelvis and all of the structures that are there from running, jumping, cutting, uh, unpredictable movements. So we know that it's, it's one of the most common types of injuries that you can have. There was a retrospective study that um, was pushed out from retired NBA athletes and um, up to half of the athletes dealt with a hip or groin injury during that time, if not more. Um, and that's from their own recollection and not just considering like, hey, that's a tight groin that I played through. They were injuries that they remembered retrospectively. And so at some point in your career, you're probably going to deal with something on the spectrum um, with the way and the rates that athletes are playing sports growing up and specializing and playing year round. Uh, we know that there's changes to the lumbo pelvis and to the hip joint uh, where we can get some bony buildup uh, on the femoral head. Uh, maybe that change in morphology predisposes them, or maybe that's just an adaptation to increase stiffness. Um, but there's just morphological changes that come with playing ath with athletics and then functional changes that come along with that. That might be a reduced range of motion. That might be strength impairments. And so you kind of try to navigate that and match the clinical profile with where they are in their career uh, as an adolescent or middle-aged or even as a retired athlete later on, uh, if that's a contributing factor to something like osteoarthritis. So there's a, there's a large spectrum just from starting to play the game to some of the morphological causes. And then there's things that we can actually like really dive into beyond an injury history or your anatomy when we can influence their training structure, their strength profiles, their movement patterns. Um, and so you kind of try to navigate between those modifiable risk factors and the appreciate and have a healthy understanding of the things that you can't change. So what in terms of morphological changes, what I know you mentioned about bony structures, is there anything else in terms of morphological changes that could cause issues? Yeah, totally. So obviously the bony bony changes or uh, uh, just your, your God-given anatomy uh, and how you're set up uh, with your, your pelvis shape, uh, male versus female, uh, and then the changes just from coming from uh, being active in your life. Uh, but there's other activity-related changes to the soft tissues, uh, be it uh, changes to the tendon or at a joint level. Um, at the pubis, you might have just a buildup of fluid or osteophytes that may appear and this has been going on for a really long time. Obviously, now we have more diagnostic imaging, so we're much more aware of, of these changes and their prevalence and what they're doing and what is common and versus what is uncommon. So anything from your osseous skeletons, uh, the soft tissues that attach them, tendon, um, 
and then muscle, like if you've had a, a strain, those fiber types are going to change. Maybe they shorten, maybe they don't. Maybe it's more of a, a different type of collagen fiber type that lines down. So we know just from from being active, pretty much everything that's involved in the movement system uh, can have some changes. Is there anything, I know you work with male athletes, but is the, is the differences between males and females that make one or the other more predisposed to hip and groin pain? That's a really interesting question, and I, I might not be the expert to, to ask no, on that one. But uh, you know, just obviously from from the shapes of the pelvis, um, maybe the force output, the the lines and the levers. Uh, it definitely, obviously, as we know, males are much more predisposed to uh, these types of injuries. And so, especially like, uh, more of like the hypomobility or the soft tissue type injuries, uh, or the lack of mobility, um, with like something like a femoral acetabular impingement where like females might be a little bit more likely to be on the dysplastic or hypermobile spectrum uh, of hip injuries. And then groin strains, adductor strains are a lot less common. You know, we can hypothesize, but we don't really know, you know, is that the the shape of the pelvis, the angle pull on the musculature, is that the amount of force that they can put out a combination of all. Um, I just have ideas, but uh, we just know that it's out there and we just keep fishing and asking questions like this to maybe find our way. So what kind of burden do, do hip and groin injuries not necessarily just the, the pain itself what kind of burden do they have on the on the mba and what you guys face day to day yeah i'd have to pull up the exact papers Cost. to say like what what number you know be it the the, the fourth most versus the sixth most common injuries that we see but as you go through like soft tissue strains your hamstrings are going to be up there but then we know adductors are right right behind the quads are right behind and you, you can consider a hamstring a hip muscle if you will and then if you get into the joint related problems we know that that's that's out there as well and so it's it's a double-edged sword because we know that you're probably going to have a pretty decent outcome you know whether it's surgical or non-surgical um, joint related or soft tissue related within a year of experiencing an injury you're probably going to be pretty fine off outcomes uh, have been documented out there in public record that uh, it doesn't really impact your career too terribly much the athletes tend to manage on and carry on non-operative or operative but the path to get there one two years out and then the recurrence rates of those can be a frustrating experience um, for the athlete, for clinicians, for teams, for everything like that, where the reoccurrence rates, um, not feeling quite up to speed, uh, having certain types of, of limitations that you feel on not hitting top end speed, or I feel like I can't change the direction uh, from an athlete experience wise, uh, it, sure, it's reassuring to know that long term, you're probably going to have a pretty good outcome based on numbers, but the path along the way it can be a little bit rocky um and that can be frustrating across the board why is why does it lead to such a rocky outcome is it is it pure diagnosis of what is the actual issue yeah that that's a start of it right because everybody wants to know exactly what's going on and a we have to make sure that we're diagnostically sound with what is your pain driver or if you have a pain driver is it coming from more than one place and even if you have a, a one or two pain driver locations then how does your anatomy training status all come into play for your function reoccurrence etc so uh, having a detailed clinical examination to 
uh, truly identify those factors and what's driving your pain is is essential on top of the diagnostic imaging. Uh, the diagnostic imaging is a very, very, again, double-edged sword. We need to use it appropriately because we're going to have findings on athletes. I think to the, to the FAI literature for more or less a tabulum and labral tear literature where people may have cam or pincer morphology bilaterally, uh, but only one side becomes symptomatic. Uh, and that could carry on for the course of their career. Uh, and so, like, what do we make of, of, of some of that type of literature and understanding what's going on? We need to know pain referral patterns and where things are coming from. So, did we rule out lumbar spine pathology? Are we getting uh, nerve referral going into the groin from there? Um, and, you know, once we address something such as like an adductor strain, are we addressing uh, pathology at the hip, either proactively and conservatively? or is that underlying root cause? And so that's an ongoing process and you need to be kind of constantly evaluating day by day, situation by situation, understanding their contextual history to make sure that you're treating the appropriate structures and managing the situation uh, accurately. So in basketball, from I suppose from your experience, is there any more common reason that athletes are getting hip and groin pain which you're leading to hip and groin injuries? Yeah, that's, that's challenging. Um, I think, you know, you look at your, your number one factors and I don't think this is limited to basketball. I think it's pretty cross sport. So, uh, age and prior injury history are, are pretty well documented, uh, to be risk factors of, of why people get it. Then you get into more of the, the fringe or modifiable risk factors or um, things that have some literature support but may have been proven disproven or it's just a little bit gray. So then you look at hip range of motion and hip range of motion, uh, specifically limited hip range of motion or total rotation uh, has been identified in some high quality publications. Uh, But that's basing and comparing uh, what limited hip range of motion is to standard populations. And as we advance sport by sport, um, population by population, male versus female, and get better normative data out there to understand what is actually mobile or hypomobile or limited hip rotation, I think that risk factor is only going to become more challenging. Um, Because I think like just either um, what we've seen, especially in some of the soccer literature, is that uh, our population norms are different than the average population. So saying what is limited hip rotation is kind of a nebulous challenge. Gross. So, and this is a big question and you've maybe kind of answered it already. So maybe it's just a bit of a recap, but why do some athletes, and you mentioned, sorry, just to go back again, you mentioned that the outcome long-term is is good, typically. So why do some have ongoing issues for one, two, three, four, five years, and some that have good outcomes pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and that's again, that's what's so challenging is because like we're trying to cover such a big spectrum, and some folks just linger on with oh, my groin's a little tight intermittently over the course of multiple, multiple seasons. They may have uh, diagnostic imaging that shows uh, arthritic changes, uh, tendinopathy at various important muscles, and they carry on just fine. And somebody may have diagnostic imaging with less arthritic changes, a smaller labral tear, and really unremarkable 
remarkable uh, soft tissue findings, and yet they're they're burdened by it. And so uh, you really have to navigate the whole person from their pain experience, their historical experience of injury management, um, to, you know, like genetics is such a nebulous and, and challenging spectrum and one that we can't really dabble in too much, but um, just their, their genetics and tolerating that. And then things that we can control and spend and be really picky over in terms of just how was their rehab? What was their loading progression? Did you restore strength? Did you restore strength symmetrically or did you restore it to group norms? Are group norms appropriate? What norms are we comparing to? Once we restored all of those clinical things and we kept them in physio, did they have an adequate load uh, response? How do they tolerate load spikes on the on the court, on the pitch, on the field? Uh, is there an absolute limit? How is What is their chronic training status? All of those types of things on top of their anatomy their their biopsychosocial factors, their pressures from friends, family, themselves, uh, coaches, et cetera, that all contribute to what and how they're feeling um, may influence if it's a more pesky uh, progression back or one that's a little bit more smooth. And you mentioned about whether you get an operative route or non-operative route. What would be the, I suppose, the point of where you take one or the other what is where is that point is that point common across everyone is it very much individual what would lead you down either track totally so uh, it's totally individual and i think the start framework where you're assessing um risk tolerance risk acceptance uh across a number of factors is a good just like uh conceptual framework to kind of help with these individualized decisions. And first and foremost, your athlete is going to be at the center of all of those decisions. It's making sure that you have a great exam and plan of care. A lot of times there's multiple uh, medical and performance providers that uh, are providing opinions to make sure that everybody's synced up and that the athlete is bought in and agreeant on a plan of care. Because of the natural course, a lot of times there is a conservative route depending on the diagnosis and their response to that um, and everybody's uh, acceptance of how good that outcome would be is is generally the first line of defense of six, 12 weeks of care. If that goes really well, you kind of, you know, have a healthy understanding of what could be out there in a worst case situation, but everybody manages on with a a appropriate progression program. And hopefully you don't have to have those big consultations and courses of care. Now, sometimes it doesn't go that way for a plethora of factors the the athlete just can't get over, over the hub and you need to have great communication, great objective measures. Hey, we didn't progress the way that we like the athletes not happy. What are the other options that we can provide to the athlete? Is everybody informed? Do we understand, uh, on the route that we're going to go? And sometimes we need to go with our surgical or orthopedic specialists and go the operative route. And then the rehab becomes kind of the same. So then we're doing the same thing all over. And, and that's the fun thing about them is that, uh, Whichever way that you go, uh, eventually your, your your workout routine, your rehab routine is going to be the crux of it. And it's just making sure that we have all the experts and especially the the athlete aligned on on whichever course that we need to go. And we'll get into some of the, the rehab stuff um, in a little while. But before we do, prevention. How do we prevent this from happening in the first place? And this is very much what the Sportsmith 6, the, the Q&A was around, but I'd love to get your, your, your point of view now. 
Totally. Um, I think it's always evolving since that, right? I think it's even more complex since we we put out that article um, where we're just trying to find the magic combination of of how those factors interact. And so we know that we can't change age, we can't change morphology, we can't change history. Those are kind of predisposed risk factors. And then which risk factors are going to nudge those in the right or wrong direction to put us in a little bit happier situation or a little bit more um, higher risk situation. So as much as I um, harped on range of motion, I think that there is merit to testing and monitoring and tracking your range of motion. but you can't just do it at the preseason and think that you're you're really good. There's a nice sports health article coming out in Hockey Athletes right now talking about competitive changes uh, to hip rotation, competitive changes to strength. And baseball's been doing this for a long time with, with athletes and pitchers' shoulders and how soon they restore range of motion and power output. And I think the hip's a similar, similar um, scenario where if you're constantly losing range of motion, and not bouncing back. Something's happening either at a joint or a soft tissue level that we need to be mindful of. Same thing with strength, right? We can't just test strength at the preseason and carry on for six months and think that we're, we're going to be fine or that this athlete's at risk or we're not, we do or we don't need to provide intervention. We need to be checking in on that, seeing how they're bouncing back. Um, you can have a nice argument with some experts in the room about how frequently you should be testing. Um, but we know that there's post-competitive changes. We know that decreased strength is going to be a risk factor for either an aggravation of a prior injury or future injury on top of um, objective surveys or just like talking to your athlete and saying, hey, I'm reporting symptoms and this matches with either symptoms on strength assessment. Um, so I think navigating all of those factors in real time in a practical way. Um, obviously, we all work with athletes, so we know what their bandwidth is for us testing everything, testing all the time, testing all the time. Um, and so finding some either clinical pearls, be it a Copenhagen squeeze test along the way, that's a little bit less cumbersome than doing like maybe dynamometry or just creating relationships with your athletes where it's like, hey, this is really important. We need to get this ever so often to make sure that you're maintaining strength. Then as you zoom out to like more of a macro scale, um, we know and it's, it's well documented that your fitness and that your sports specific load has a relationship with injury. I think it's elusive to know what that relationship is, um, but at least monitoring how what their competition schedule is, what are those demands, how is that matching up with their symptom presentation, is there ways that we can influence it through individual work, team-based work, competition work to make sure that they're um, – all of those factors together are kind of gelling and keeping a, a, a allostatic, happy, happy place. So we're just going to get a very quick break in this chat with Steve. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around the rehab program for a particular groin injury. And also asking the question, do we have to stop playing completely to rehab, an athletic, to rehab athletic groin pain? Or can we play through it and manage it? So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. 
So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end -end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot U-S. And now back to the episode with Steve. So when it comes to the range of motion, range of motion testing, what does that look like? How often are you guys doing it? What's your reflection on how it's going? Would you uh, and would you prefer to do more? Are you happy with how you know how, what's the what's the outcome of that um, with what you use the data for off the back of it? Totally, yeah. On our end, we find practical ways to 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 accomplish some of these tasks. So obviously like for any data to be good, there has to be some semblance of integrity and consistency and reliability and validity to how we do that. So your initial tests and measures need to be um, pretty spot on, pretty detailed to make sure that you're getting good data. Cause if you're just getting data, it's not appropriate. So your initial baseline testing or formal clinical exam testing um, with simple goiniometry or an, an inclinometer, um, you know, be it in a prone position, uh, seated 90-90 position or supine 90-90 position. Uh, there's some documented clinical ways to obtain that hip range of motion. And you need to make sure that your baselines are pretty spot on when you're doing that. Now, when we break down on a, on a daily or weekly schedule and guys and clinicians and, and practitioners are seeing their athletes, you might be getting a range of motion just from a range of motion screen just from stretching an athlete and just getting a quick end feel, oh, that's a little bit different. How are we feeling? You're not gonna over-medicalize a situation, but being really mindful of the things that you're doing day to day, watching an athlete in their dynamic warm up, and oh, they look a little bit stiff about their hips. Is that something that I need to bring up or dive into? Or if I get my hands on them later on, am I gonna just do a little bit more of a proper screen later on? Um, and those are, those are low bandwidth because you're tying it into athlete care. Um, be it some massage or some soft tissue work or some mobilization work and getting a feel and just being mindful of the techniques that you're doing. And that's a range of motion screen. Obviously, there's less reliability and validity to that, but it might tune you in, especially if they're having symptoms or reporting something or you know their history and they've been maybe flagged um, just from their profile. Hey, maybe I need to dive into this a little bit more. Let me get the inclinometer out. Let's get a little bit more proper measure. How are we holding up on the weekly, on the daily, on, a, on the middle of a long East Coast road trip? Um, and those are the types of things where you're mixing kind of the art and the science where I think realistically to get consistent data, you kind of, sometimes you have to compromise a little bit and everybody has their healthy scale of what they're willing to compromise on. But if your baselines are strong and you're getting some hints along the way, uh, that allows you to dive, dive in without losing the athlete. Perfect. So that's range of motion covered off. So in terms of, in terms of strength testing, same, same question applies. What, how often are you doing it? What kind of tests are you looking at? At what point is a flag raised to either have a conversation or introduce an intervention? 
Totally. So yeah, same kind of deal. It's the same idea where um, the strength testing can be a little bit more cumbersome. Uh, there's different. There's a, a lot of different avenues on how you're going to do it. Are you going to utilize an isokinetic machine, which is a lot more uh, larger setup? It's going to have a little bit higher fidelity um, data. Uh, but it's going to take up a lot of your time. The machine's cumbersome. You can't travel it. Uh, and when you're on the game for or on the road for 100 plus games, you need something that's a little bit more mobile. So then you get into your fixed dynamometers, your handheld dynamometers. And I think those are really good tools when you're playing a lot of competition and your practice facility is packed up in a bunch of suitcases and boxes like we do. Um, so again, our, our baselines need to be pretty precise. And there was a nice dynamometry review that came out in JOSBT right now, uh, just overviewing the, the pros and cons of some of the, the, the reliability and validity of, of testing these different hip positions. And so I think the biggest thing is that you're being consistent with the measures that you're taking and taking everything with a, a, a grain of salt. So uh, we've found some things on handheld dynamometry that might be a little bit different than fixed dyna dynamometry. And so you kind of have different buckets of the strength that you're taking, but having that flexibility allows you to take data more frequently. And you're probably going to take data more frequently on people that have either been flagged um, for their specific issues or they're preventing symptoms. Hopefully it's more on the latter. And then like we alluded to, um, at the beginning, we have such a great group here. We're synced in. We communicate well. Where when we do flag, we make training interventions right away. Um, whether that's, you know, if they're if they're symptomatic, it might be limiting some lateral work with the coaches. If their strength's just lower at baseline, we're introducing training interventions. Um, and, and more so than anything, I think that's the the best part about screening and assessing is that it's a checks and balance for clinicians to say, hey, did I forget about? treating and providing an intervention to the hip and groin, even though th this athlete's been fine for a year. They're trending downwards. We kind of forgot about it. Let's reboot the program. Let's make sure that they're getting it in. Hopefully we never get to the point where there are symptoms because we're, we're getting enough frequency where we're providing the intervention and the intervention and, and just well-rounded training is probably um, more important than all of the testing and the screening. So have you, do, do you regularly do the hand, use the handheld because then you can take it on the road and it's comparable to what you've got at home? Or do you sometimes use the fixed and keep that in its own bucket versus the handheld? Yeah, totally. So we, we take the handheld enough to where we know that we're reliable on the athletes. And then when we're on the road, that's our biggest tool just from a, a practicality standpoint. And we can fixate that as well. Um, so we can make it comparable. Um, and we've done enough data comparison on a, on a fixed dynamo, uh, fixed device where, um, we feel pretty comfortable with if there is a change between a fixed dynamometer and a handheld, we know what percentage that that's at just from doing this for a good chunk of years. Um, so we feel comfortable relating. And then we test enough on all platforms where we feel like we get a pretty good picture and progression of where an athlete's at. Do you use the handheld and, and this as part of a larger like, readiness overview of a player or is this very much an individual, this guy or girl has has had previous issues, we need to keep a target on them or is this kind of organization-wide? Both, both, okay. all of the above. Yeah, so okay. so some, some, some guys get a little bit more of a frequent check-in, especially if they've had like a recent bout of like low-level symptoms. And that, hey, this is just your check-in. Do you get symptoms with that? Is that clinical-based? Where are we trending? How are we flagging? Are you ready to take on an extra workout? Something like that. Um, 
And then across the board, regardless of how you're feeling, I think there's even the people that you're not as concerned about, they're still at risk. Right. And so we want to make sure that our, our athletes are well, well-rounded. Um, hip strength is pretty well accepted, not just in the hip and the groin, but what is the impact to um, the knee and ankle, uh, the lumbar spine. So uh, hip strength is, is, is always a curiosity for a lot of different things, not just at the, at the hip joint or the related musculature. So that's an area that we feel like we can always get benefit from, from obtaining hip strength. So are you looking at particular ratios? I know that was mentioned in the article uh, and is pretty common in, from, from uh, guys in positions uh, like you, but is there any other, any other flags from the strength side of things that you would, it would lead you to, to an intervention? Totally, yeah. I mean, and, and like you were alluding to earlier, sometimes a guy just doesn't have the sauce that day. And that's a flag for us. He's not squeezing hard. It's bits below. His eyes are half closed. And you're like, okay, how, how are we doing? Forget the test. Like, did we not sleep? Are we just exhausted? Are we pushing you too much? Like, what's going on? How, 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 how is Rob doing today? Are we, are, we, are we cool? We can kick this down the road a little bit. Let's make sure Rob's okay today and get to it, right? Um, does that match up with like some of their energy on a force plate or their antenna jump? Um, you're trying to just paint that, that picture today. And so I think there's a readiness component to it from the effort that they're willing to put forth that, that you can glean from it. And that's, that's one factor. Ratios, I think there's, that there's a healthy balance of, of support, not necessarily in basketball so much, but other sports. And it's why we need population norms um, and just different populations of data to, to help make these assumptions across sports. Because in, in, in say, hockey, when you want a ratio adductor to, to abductor ratio of 0.8 to 0.9, um, that's telling us something, right? How balanced are we across the pelvis? Where can we generate force? Um, if that ratio is adequate or inadequate, what is just the peak force or, or the rate of the force that they're developing? Is that lower level? Like if, if you're not able to generate peak force at a, at a high level um, or comparable to your baseline or group baselines, you might have a great looking ratio and think that you're fine, but you just can't generate force. Um, or what level lever are you testing at? Are you testing at the knees? Are you testing at long lever? Are you testing in a hook line position? I think there's there's benefit to understanding how that they're generating force, what position, and what the entire picture is is telling you. So you can't just say that oh their ratios one to one and life's good and carry on. Um, you need to take all of those factors from intent to peak force, to their muscle balance. Um, and then how does that carry over to compound movements? Um, just because that you're able to generate it in a, either a supine, a seated position, however you're gonna test it, doesn't mean that you're actually able to go and carry it over in, in a compound movement on the court. So I forgot to ask you at the time we were going through the strength testing, what, what positions are you testing in on a regular basis? Uh, mainly supine uh, and long lever. Okay. Any particular reason for that? Have you dabbled with other positions and come back to that? What's the What's the story there? Totally. I, th I think it started with just a good 
overview of the literature. Um, you know, you can test in supine 90-90, you can test in, in hook lying, um, you can test mainly at the knees. Um, and it's just been a trial and error. And I think every every sport and every situation is going to be a little bit different. But um, adductor longus seems to be uh, one of the more commonly affected adductor muscles more so than the other. You might be able to glean a little bit more from that long lever um, and in a supine position versus bent knee where you might get a little bit more co-contraction of everything and that might be a higher force. But um, if you put it in a more challenging position, uh, you might be able to, to tease out some more value in, in what the, the force numbers are telling you. Perfect. Right. Injury prevention. Done. Let's move on to I, should. I, I, well, not done. We're done for today. <laughs> done for today. Done yeah, for today. I, 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 we, we, unsolved, we unsolved it, but we're done for today. But moving on, moving on to the, the somebody sustained a, a groin injury. Let's go through the rehab. So, what do we need to understand from day one, from where this rehab is going to go? What's your first part of call, and let's move on from there. For sure. So again, starts with the diagnosis, right? Making sure that we're we're assessing and testing. We're highly detailed from what tissues are most sensitized, injured, and affected um, to what their impairments are. Um, Thorberg had a great article um, in JOSPT in the summary. And that was regardless of what tissues are affected, basically, is that treating their impairments is going to take you through their return to sport. And so it's really identifying not just a proper diagnosis, but what are their their local impairments and progressing them through a stage rehabilitation um, and being very objective and detailed with that is going to be your, your periodized plan, your roadmap. So once we have a good diagnosis, you're going to stage your rehab, calm those tissues down get a handle on their pain, protect that for as long as, as biolog- biology and, and their presentation uh, allows you to. So you're being mindful of if it's a muscle strain and it's a, a mid to higher grade, that's going to take a little bit more time to calm down. We're probably not going to load and stress it as much early on versus a lower grade or if it's joint related and we're just really trying to offload the joint and keep that happy um, we might be doing just more modified movements and modified loads or limiting impact a lot more than just our resistance training exercises again to to keep that tissue uh, allowing it to heal and calm down and training what we can so once you've calmed that down through a level of rest modalities um, appropriate manual therapies soft tissues joint mobilizations all the fun stuff then it's how can you load this appropriately and it's three-dimensional loading right adductors abductors gluteals trunk core lower extremity isolated movements and compound movements there's so many things that you do and that clinicians have a bias towards i think it's just very important for individuals to have their own construct to stay organized because every time you're on the internet you're going to see oh man i love that exercise for the hip. I love that exercise for the adductor. And it's easy to get carried away and try to throw everything into your cocktail of, of rehab uh, versus just staying organized, keep it simple, load it appropriately, test. Are you making sure that you're getting gains? Are you keeping symptoms at bay? Are we progressing accordingly? And then you can go on to the next step. And you might start out a little bit more locally based, a little bit more isolated table-based exercises. And now we're moving compound joints as we transition subacute to, to, to a more functional rehab. And you build that up and it's the same thing. You need to have specific uh, objective measures that allow you to 
then jog and then run and making sure that symptoms stay at bay and that you're maintaining strength. And then you add another variable, be it intensity or, or multi-direction, and then you're introducing more sporting work. And I think it's important too to not lose track of not overly right of the earlier exercises, but once you start to do all the fun stuff, the sprinting, the cutting, you're back on pitch, it's easy to wean off of some local strengthening or some key compound movements just because they're back playing their sport. And with recurrence being so high, there's nothing wrong with taking a little bit more time to make sure that everything's restored or that it, it maintains or it bounces back in between days and not just being so rushed to get out to the pitch, but making sure that all of those little things are, are maintaining and responding appropriately. It's great that you're back on the pitch, but now our strength levels are decreased and they haven't bounced back in four training sessions. Let's back off a little bit just to make sure that we're primed and ready to go before the next step of rehab. Um, and so just being very organized, detailed, and stepwise with your rehab, I think is very important. This next question probably should have come before the previous question, but do we, do we have to stop playing to, to rehab this or is it something to be managed? What is that understanding of we're reducing your playing time and your training time versus we're stopping that altogether because of whatever reason, what, where is that cut, cut off point for you? Totally. Well, I'll start you with the anecdotal throwback. Uh, I'm the old guy. Cause that's what I did. I rested uh, when I had my injury, I rested for a good like six to 12 weeks and then just went back and boom, was right back to where I was before. And I was like, well, that was a wasted three months. That was, uh, that was a bummer. <laughs> and, and so I think that there's a healthy balance, right? These, these athletes want to play. Um, they want to be coached. They want to do their profession just like we want to be doing the things that we love to do. And if we're being creative and responsible, there's ways to keep them moving, keep them engaged, to maintain your sport-specific conditioning to a safe degree. Um, it might not be at the capacity or the level or the threshold that everybody would want at the time, but in the majority of these cases, you can keep a good bout of training, especially if it's chronic. If it's if it's acute strain, there's probably going to be some limitations initially early on for a week or two where, where you just really need to protect the tissues. But in chronic cases where they're low irritability, you have a good gauge, you have a good baseline, it's about... It's about appropriately scheduling, having communication with all the key stakeholders that are are touching these people, right? Your strength coaches, your sporting coaches, um, the medical practitioners, what they're doing when they come back and in, in, in their alone time, and really being dialed in on what they can do to to steal that from some some great coaches. You have that circle, right? This is what you can do. Let's focus on that, um, not what you can't do. And the more that you can keep them moving, I think you can keep the athlete more engaged. You can maintain their fitness a little bit better, which we know is a risk factor. Um, hopefully, it helps you navigate some load bumps when they're back. Um, practicing um and so the long the, the short answer to the, the to the long answer is that we definitely want to keep them uh, training as much as possible so in back back to the rehab is there any particular markers that you would use at certain time points to ensure that you're on the right track and able to able to push forward during that um that that grand injury rehab Totally. Yeah. I would, I would push it over to Christian's, Christian's article is such a great resource. Um, for anything from a, just a very basic clinical Copenhagen squeeze test and getting their pain scale with that, just on how we're doing on the daily. Um, if you have less, um, if you want to be objective and you don't have um, the opportunity to utilize a handheld dynamometer, you can utilize a blood pressure cuff. 
and just get some strength readings there. There's a lot of ways to just get an objective measure um, and match some some force output with symptoms. I think that's that's a very basic day-to-day scale that's um, really applicable, easy. You can do it on the pitch. You can do it in the training room. You can do it on the court. We can do it anywhere at any time. You can do it at breakfast, um, and it's a really nice tool. Uh, Obviously, then you want to quantify that force like we talked about. If you have more bells and whistles um, using your dynamometries, a nice skill that you can do early on and track some week-to-week progress. with that, as I got on a tangent, I think we're still talking about objective measures, correct? On, on, on yeah, what we're looking at, but then the next, then you're just going to s- start sprinkling in some more compound movements. Um, you know, your Y balance test or your star, star excursion, especially when you get into those posterior medial and posterior lateral angles, are just going to really scour your 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 hip or your groins either capacity to stabilize there to tolerate some some ranges of motion or um, if you're looking at the anterior reach on that it might just help you glean on what what's going on at the trunk not only do you get an objective like reach measure and it's balance and it's, it's kind of multifactorial but okay if I'm, I'm i'm loading into a little bit more of a flex pattern that oftentimes is is um painful or compromised. Uh, if they're tolerating that and getting symmetrical, that's a good sign that you're trending in the right direction. Uh, you can do like a Thomas stretch or a crossover sign. You can test your your ranges of motion or your, your fancy special tests, which are just glorified. Um, uh, range of motion tests such as a fader, uh, flexion, adduction, internal rotation, or a faber, flexion, abduction, and external rotation, seeing if that's bringing on any types of symptoms. Um, making sure that if those symptoms are coming along that uh, a lot of people can have symptoms with that but is that your concordant is that the same symptom that you feel you and i can do a fader right now and oh that's a little pinchy that's a little bit grabby but really qualifying that having attention to detail in your questioning to be like no 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 no. is that the pain that's bringing you here to be on the physio table is that the pain that's limiting you from doing what you're doing on the court or is that just a wonky test that this guy's making me do and i can carry on about my day and i don't really have to worry about it and so having some attention to detail with that that's a little bit more of a micro test and then you're going to go as big as your your counter movement jumps on the force plate um and then as we're tracking later stage rehab how is their trunk moving with some multi-directional work what is their positioning on a run can we impact that can we not impact that where are we in our, in our rehab but those are they're fun questions to ask and um, opportunities to to maybe do some movement skills and film it and break down some movement patterns and seeing how how they're responding to progressing as they get a little bit more dynamic in their rehab towards the end stage that was that's brought me on perfectly to the next question with it we get further down that line and you're looking at, like you say, trunk position during change direction. Is that very much a subjective thing or are you trying to incorporate tech to make it a little bit more objective? Both, right? I th- this, is, this, is such a, this is such a fun area that I wish I knew more about um, and I wish I was better at. And it's challenging because we can break down your clinical exams are so well tested and validated because they're easy to do so. It's easy to reproduce a squeeze. It's easy to reproduce an internal rotation assessment. 
But now that we're doing a, a pro agility test or a 505 and we're filming it, there's so many more variables that we need to be aware of. And, you know, practically not everybody has a, a 3D motion capture lab um, with, with high internal validity and we're really, really keened in on a joint by joint level and the cameras are fantastic. You know, we got cell phones or stationary iPads that we can set up and do the best we can and we're drawing it on Dartfish and, and things like that. But how accurate are we being within ourselves? And then how much did those drills transfer over to when they're making a reactive movement on the court. A shuffle or a change of direction when they're bringing their hand to the ground or a cone probably isn't going to happen in a good chunk of sports. Or if they do, you're probably in a compromised position competitively and it's a, it's a little bit challenging and it's probably going to be reactive. And so like you're trying to cue that up. Same with sprinting, right? Are they increasing their lordosis? Where's our hip extension? Uh, is it because that's their national inclination? Is it because they're fatigued? It's really interesting to see some of the papers come out and uh, especially with either the lordosis or the trunk position and saying there's probably something to this. But on a practical level, how much can we identify it through proper testing practically and realistically within our time management? Then how can we train it within specific drills? And then does that training actually carry over to when they're doing their sporting movement? in those specific movement patterns. There's a lot to unpack there. It's really, really intriguing. Um, and I think just as intriguing as it is, I think like it's practically challenging and there might be a lot of assumptions to be made there, but, um, I'm really looking forward to diving into that and learning more about it and having more conversations with, with you and other, other experts to see what they say about that. Cause like, you see how people are moving differently when they're in pain and what their trunk position is or how they offload a joint that's affected. And as they recover, does that come back? Does that become their permanent movement pattern? How does it change when they're fatigued? I feel like there's a lot we can un address there and we can attack. Um, but it's just a very, very challenging topic to appreciate and, and to get that carryover at the current time in our understanding. Well, I'm conscious of your time. But one last thing that you mentioned, mentors and people that you would go to for information on this particular area, who would be those people? You've mentioned Christian Thorborg and some of the, obviously lots of the work that he's done. Is there anyone else out there that you would tap into for, for info on this, in this particular area? Oh my gosh, too many to Read count. Off, um, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> stolen everybody's ideas. Um, uh, Enda King is is amazing. I'm fortunate to talk to him, uh, and he he he's given a nice perspective. And it's fun when you like compare like Enda versus like Christian. Christian's obviously another resource who's done so much for the field and has been so valuable there. Um, that, that is just fun to compare and contrast some of their research and how you can combine that to kind of make that your own philosophy, um, if you will, or in practice, because they're experts in, in, in so many different ways. I think I can't say enough about those two guys, especially from afar and, and limited conversations, but they're fantastic. Um, I think gleaning information from some of the top hip experts, be it um, Dr. Philippon, uh, Dr. Brian Kelly, um, Dr. Jamie Gennario, who is, is, is in Denver, um, and just picking their brain about what they see when they're in the OR is super fascinating. Um, I think talking like uh, um, 
I'm going to say his name wrong Go on. because I just know I've only, but, but Dos Santos and his change of direction yeah, work, yeah, perfect, um, yeah. it, it, you know what I mean? Even if it's focused at, at the ACL, um, you can glean that from, uh, you can, you can apply that work to the hip. Um, Rula at, at Aspitar in, in her work with the, the, at the ACL, I think is just as impactful at the, at the hip, um, and what she's seeing from a force output perspective. And when people are injured, the changes in, in joint loading and how they train, um, in that movement lab work, I think is, is super applicable. And then on a clinical level, um, you know, Mike Riemann, he's a fellow, he's out at Duke, Chad Cook, everything that they've done from like the spine and, and intervention wise at the hip, I think is, is fantastic. Um, and then who, people I've learned from Donnie Strack, Chris and Jeff Moore, Phil and the um, those guys are great clinicians who, um, heavily influenced practice. So I think there's just such a spectrum of, of folks and everybody on our staff, like learn how to load the hip a different way, just from, um, you know, everybody that, that I work with on the daily. Um, and I learn from them. So there's, there's too many influences to count. Amazing. Right. Well, I think that rounds up nicely. Um, are you a social media guy? You're not particular social media guy, are you? I'll just retweet some stuff on okay. Twitter here and there. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Steve Short, DPT, and I'll probably much just be echoing other people's content that I think is really great um, and highlight that. But if anybody ever wants to reach out, that's the one I'm pretty much on. Perfect. Good enough for me. Right, mate. Thank you very much for squeezing me into the schedule between practicing in the, in the game tonight. Good luck with the game and uh, look forward to keeping in touch and um, hopefully do some more do some more stuff together. Yeah, I can't wait for the next round. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to episode 482 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Steve for fitting me in a very busy schedule just between games while he was sat in a hotel room in Boston. So big thanks to Team Builder, Play and Vile Performance for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I'm chatting to you next time.